0: Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast with Sports Pro Editor Owen Connolly. Getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome to another Sports Pro Podcast. Joining me, I'm delighted to have the Nielsen... Now you're going to have to walk me through this one. Nielsen Editorial Director for Sport and Entertainment, David Cushnan? Yeah, that'll do.
1: That'll do. Hello.
0: And um, joining us for the first time is the Twitter uh, head of partnerships or head of sports partnerships for Asia Pacific, Anish Madani. Hi, Anish.
2: Hi. Thanks for having
0: me. Thanks for coming. It's um, it's a rare treat. You're you're only over for what a couple of weeks, enjoying some of the, the British sporting summer.
2: That is right. It is beautiful out here, and uh, there seems to be some good tennis on at the moment. So,
0: well, we will get to that um, a little bit later in the program but first of all i wanted to pick up on uh on the topic of athlete marketing now SportsPro has released in the last fortnight its eighth annual list of the world's 50 most marketable athletes basically looking at 50 of the names who uh brands should be looking to sign over the next three years it's obviously a forward-looking list it's um based very much on on value for money and on the the kind of developing stories of these athletes careers i mean before we got on to the topic in any broader terms i just wanted to know if either of you had any thoughts on the list from what you've seen of it any names that jumped out any stories that that you wanted to pick out uh well as
1: somebody owen who uh, has helped put together these lists in the past um but who was not involved in this year's list um it probably won't surprise you to know, especially because you sat in on some of those discussions that we used to have, uh, that I disagreed with uh, large parts of the list. But that, I think that's the point, really, isn't it? It's, it's supposed to uh, stir debate. I don't think you can quibble, really, with um, the number one. I don't know if we're, we're revealing spoilers uh, on this podcast.
0: Um, I think we are... We're, we're hoping that most people are familiar, but... Yeah, the number one on the list this year is uh, is world heavyweight champion Anthony Joshua, the first boxer, the second Brit um, to top the list in its eight-year history, and a, an all-round personable, popular, powerful sports personality um, with a lot of global growth ahead of him, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and clearly he has had quite a year so far. I think it's very interesting to have a... Boxer at the top of the list. Um, it's a little bit of a risk. It's always, it's always, you know, it's a sport where you know you can quite literally be knocked off your perch and, and knocked mm. down. So um, you know, we'll have to see uh, how his how his future pans out. But if you look at some of the plans that are being hatched for him uh, by his uh, his team at, uh, at Matchroom, you can see the potential. Obviously, the United States. Then they're talking about potentially taking him and uh, to new markets for him, but new markets essentially for boxing as well, and, and staging um, staging shows uh, involving him in places like China. I think the Middle East has been discussed as well. So, look, the world's his oyster at the moment, and um, you know he's already very well backed by a number of brands. There's potentially a little bit of clutter there that they probably have to just be a little bit cautious about moving forward. But for a man who has uh, appeared only on um, subscription TV in the UK and pay-per-view broadcasts in the UK—he has definitely broken through into the mainstream. He's been on the One Show. He's had um, a uh, BBC documentary filming him. So, you know, he's uh, he's a, a very, very uh, uh,
0: legitimate number one in my view. Um, Anish, were there any other names that, that caught your eye there?
2: I think what was interesting for me was that the top six are from six different sports. And so it's a, it's a list that has variety. And um, the only Asian in that list is Virat Kohli from cricket. And uh, it's interesting how sports that take over the uh, the conscience of countries... Uh, can do so well in propelling athletes like these to the top. If you look at the top six, uh, and it's interesting from a Twitter perspective, Conor McGregor, the two fighters in the top five, Conor McGregor has four times the following of of Anthony Joshua, but Virat Kohli has four times the following of Conor Mm -hmm. McGregor with almost 17 million followers. And uh, it's unbelievable how I think in this space, uh, the fact that you are a personality not just on the field, uh, and are excellent, but also have a uh, really interesting personality
1: off the field contributes to that marketability. And I think one other thing that struck me from the list and, and thinking about the, the previous year's lists is, um, you know, as you know, and I was involved in, in sort of putting together the, the first list eight years ago, which you remind me of, which is fairly staggering. But um Clearly, the list, as you said, is based on on looking ahead and projecting forward three years, and, and which uh, athlete is going to offer uh, the the best value for sponsors. And there's lots of criteria that you consider, you know, home market, uh, willingness to be marketed, also you know social uh, uh, followings, but also activity on on social. What sort of content is being produced? I think what's interesting, and clearly performance—you know—the ability to be successful at your chosen sport is is the most obvious, really. You know, uh, none of the athletes on this list would would be where they are without you know being extremely good at what they do. I think what's interesting to me is is thinking about longevity. And eight years ago, when we started this list, and I can't remember—it's lost to the mists of time—as to who exactly was on that list, but I imagine Roger Federer was on it. Who would have thought that 8 years later Roger Federer would be a Grand Slam champion again at the Australian Open in the final uh, of uh, or in the in the semifinals at least of Wimbledon we are actually recording this I think when he's he's on court playing his semifinal Sergio Garcia has been around for years you know best part of 20 years wins the masters makes his breakthrough this year which you know I'm not saying it, it those those people deserve to be on the list but I think it's it's interesting to see that compared to, to the rationale for the, the feature mm-hmm. when we first started it, we maybe underestimated longevity in, in, in marketing and I think probably at a time where you know we, we, there's been many high profile cases of athlete misbehavior of you know doping in some cases of very marketable athletes, um, brands are probably looking for, a safe bet in all sorts of ways. They're looking for a safe bet in terms of an athlete who's going to be clean cut and say the right things and do the right things. And it's impossible to, to have the perfect athlete. Everybody everybody who performs at, at the top level has their moments. But um, I think it's interesting to, um, to think about what brands are looking for in 2017, uh, maybe compared to what they might have been looking for eight years ago and i think safety longevity sustained success uh are key are key parts of that
0: yeah i think um there's a sports performance thing that comes into that as well and it's something that i actually addressed in my uh, my editor's letter for the print version of the of the list which is out now and will be with those of you who are sports pro subscribers uh imminently um but the fact that there are athletes and i don't think Roger Federer was ever on the list i think he was actually one of the omissions on the basis of the kind of 3 year rule and the expense rule but you know he would have been in his late 20s and we would have looked at it and said you know in 3 years time is he still going to be a professional tennis player which was a legitimate question at that point but now you look you've got federer rafael nadal who although he went out on monday was looking in fantastic form at, at wimbledon serena williams who is still the dominant force in women's tennis will be on hiatus at the moment and her sister who is making a Wimbledon final at 37 um, people who you know you've, you've written off as perhaps a little bit strong but you're, you're thinking of winding down and, and yet on and on they go and you've got Cristiano Ronaldo in football and Tom Brady in, in uh, American football and, and so on
2: I think in addition to the performance and sustained excellence is what adds to the marketability of these athletes is also their ability to own the moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really interesting because we talk about this as a parallel with brands sometimes on the platform and about the use of the platform uh, on Twitter specifically. But in the top six, you remember at least one moment from each of those athletes that has traveled the world and embedded themselves into the minds of fans that makes brands think again and say, this is an athlete who is in the mix of the conversation, Mm -hmm. whether it was Steph Curry's um, basket from half court to win a match at the last second, whether it was Jordan Spieth's bunker shot a few weeks ago for his...
1: Uh, for his last title or, or Virat Kohli's chase against Australia in the World T 20 and, and in Paul Pogba's case, it possibly actually wasn't anything he did on a football pitch. It was the announcement right. of his deal with Manchester United yeah. and the link-up with Stormzy and Adidas, yeah. um, which is a question I had for Owen, actually. Mm. This is probably about six weeks, I guess, since you created the list and, and sat down and put it together. I saw today that uh, Romolo Lukaku, um, who has obviously just joined Manchester United from Everton, uh, for a hefty fee, mm. um, has, he's a hefty man. <laughs> has um, uh, broken, I think, Manchester United's record for the most retweeted piece of content. There's some, yeah, I'm sure you, I'm sure we will uh, find out exactly what it is. And it's and it's interesting actually that all the content that they put together around the, the signing and the hashtag #RedRom mm. um, uh, campaign that was put into action that content has generated more content because today they're talking about the fact it's broken a a record for them would he have been on the list had you produced the list today do you think and is that how is that how transient and shifting athlete marketability is
0: um i don't think so is the answer i think i can see the argument that you're making um of course one of the, the things that we've often said is that you could happily put 40 premier league footballers in it and um, and you probably wouldn't be too far wrong, and, and the same would go for kind of 25 NBA players and, and so forth. Um, th- that is something that I wanted to get to, though, re- regarding kind of the, the social media space and the kind of uh, cross cultural things that are now coming into marketability for athletes. Um, the, the stuff that, uh, that Pogba was doing with Stormzy last year, the stuff that Anthony Joshua has been doing this year with, um, with Beats by Dre, cross pollination between the entertainment and the sports space and, and the fact that social makes that so much easier to bring about.
2: I think another piece that is interesting is, um, is how these athletes look at each other as well. Uh, within the top 50, uh, are they looking at their peers and they, do they look up to them? Uh, for instance, Virat Kohli is a fan of Conor McGregor just behind him on the list and he's tweeted to him a few times mm-hmm. added to that conversation uh and when he does that the profile of mma and conor mcgregor himself just goes through the roof mm-hmm. in a country like india where Virat is really followed mm-hmm. so um, so i wonder if there is an element to that as well where when you're making the list is there an aspect of saying when this person walks onto the field or walks into the locker room or walks into an award show Is he the person that all the other athletes are looking at, he or she?
1: And I think um, some of the the, the big brands, Red Bull is an obvious example. ESPN is probably another example where they work or they they create uh, campaigns or they create events where these athletes are meeting each other. And that's where, you know, and it has to be, To an extent, organic. I think if you if you force it, you know, if you if you start talking about being authentic, and you're overthinking it, you're probably not being authentic. So it has to it has to work. It's 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 intangible, but you know, when that sort of chemical reaction is right, I think I think you're right. And you know, Pogba and Stormzy is is now a it's one of those classic um, uh, sponsorship um, transfer sports industry marketing case studies and Mm -hmm. it will be in it will be taught probably in 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 the future on sports marketing courses because you know all all the stars aligned Mm.
0: um
1: another uh, all the stripes aligned that's quite a clever joke
0: that yeah (laughs) um it's a thinker yeah um the uh, talking about this kind of meeting point of two cultures and and um you know, uh, and the the draw that individual athletes have away from their sport, the fact that they can stand outside their sport and, and represent something else. But at Wembley Arena this evening, uh, Conor McGregor will be standing face-to-face once again with Floyd Mayweather bringing together, you know, two sports, but also just creating an event almost entirely off the back of the media profile of, of these athletes. I mean, is that is that something new? Are we overthinking that as a, a new concept, or is that something that... That's a genuine breakout for the sports industry.
1: Um, I'm not sure it's new. I mean, they are they're currently going around the world selling a fight, so it's just a sort of inflated version of what what boxers have done for decades. Um, in terms of you know, yes, they are training, yes, they're preparing for a big sporting occasion, but until pretty much the last moment, they are salesmen. They're trying to you know they're trying to move subscriptions to the to this. Uh, this show, I mean, this one really is uh, um, quite something, I mean, it's I, I mean, I struggle to see the the it as anything other than a, a big pantomime, to be honest and I think, you know, going back to authenticity, I think whilst most people can see through that and see this is a show and they're putting on a show and they're doing ever more ridiculous things and I think over the last three days we've seen them go from Fairly standard press conference to trash talking to throwing money at each other and, and fur coats. And, and um, you know, it's, it's got more in common with, you know, WWE than anything at the, the moment, I think. But, you know, we all like watching it. We all like mm-hmm. watching the clips. And, and many of us will buy the, the, the fight, mm-hmm. although not me, because um, <laughs> it clashes with my wedding apart from anything else.
0: Well, it doesn't preclude you uh, ordering it. It, it might. Be, it might be the first fight of your marriage if you did. But yes, that would be. That would be in two senses of the word. That would be frowned upon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's an interesting. Uh, you talk about case studies. It's there is probably no one else in in UFC, and this is very much a kind of brand builder for UFC ahead of um you know their latest round of TV deals and. And all the rest of it, and obviously a year into their ownership by new owners who've spent quite a lot of money on it and probably would like to see things accelerate or continue to accelerate um, in terms of commercial growth. But you kind of couldn't have anyone other than Conor McGregor do it, and you kind of couldn't have anyone other than Floyd Mayweather, who is the absolute master at giving you just enough reason to either want to or believe that he will lose, and then just completely shut down... Uh, any chances when when things actually get underway but i mean as a sporting contest it has has pretty negligible value but i think it's it's an interesting um study in where athlete brands are going um we we've had a few discussions internally about the future of of the most multiple athletes list and the future of uh of endorsements in in general um and it's not just Athletes who have this kind of profile anymore, it's not just kind of mainstream entertainers who have this kind of profile anymore uh, and this ability to connect with audiences. And it's also not just um, because of what's happening with, with digital audiences, it's not just uh, athletes coming out of the traditional space, it's kind of you know your hashtag FCs and, and influencers and, and all the rest of it who are diverting marketing departments' attention away from... Um, Uh, from the traditional sports space. I mean, how much of that do you see a niche in terms of what people are talking about with you on your platform?
2: A really good example of this, um, and as in life, timing is everything. So sometimes the question is not as much what sports are on or what what are people into as much as what is the national conversation about, what is the international conversation about, Um, And an example of this is from the Olympics last year, where India had to wait really, really long for their first medal. And uh, it was an unexpected medal that came at three in the morning from a woman wrestler named Sakshi Malik. Um, And within hours of winning India's first medal at the Olympics, uh, she was on Twitter. And in the first 24 hours, she had tens of thousands of followers, including the most Public of figures in the country, from Bollywood celebrities to ministers, uh, and endorsements naturally followed. And uh, the interesting thing there, as Olympic athletes, sometimes you you only have um, the attention of fans during the Olympics. But what this did for her was to have a conversation with them as she went along, and uh, and now it's become really interesting where marketeers start opening up, brands start opening up, and they say, what are the moments in the year that people really care
1: about, um, and where should we invest in? I think you use the phrase, and I think it's the ability to connect. You know, if, as an athlete, you can connect with a large group of fans, followers, a community, then you are attractive to brands. Because everybody is looking for that cut through. And it might be that you have the ability to connect through being the best in the world at your sport. Or it might be that you have the ability to connect because you are particularly good at interacting with people via social, or you are delivering some really, really good behind-the-scenes content, or you are funny, or you are, you know, seen as as the entertainer. you're the 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 bad boy or the the controversial the controversial figure. So brands are looking for for something different all the time and I think if as an athlete you have the ability to connect and it's 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 not forced and it's organic then you're in you know you are in a category that that brands will will be looking at you. They will be they will be looking at your fan base they'll be matching it up with their objectives so you're right the 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 traditional sort of endorsement of a product is you know still exists clearly but it's a lot more complicated than that and you know as we'll we'll go on to talk about um i'm sure it's a lot more complicated because of the changing media landscape the ability for everybody to be their own broadcaster and 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 produce their own content and for everybody to control their own their own fan base their Mm. own group of people so it's Um, It's, uh, you know, it's ever fascinating and and it will be very interesting to see how those changes in the market are reflected in next year's list, both in terms of who's on it and maybe the the format of it.
0: And I suppose um, the big thing that brands are going to have to understand and, you know, as as their attention turns to areas like esports, which is already happening in a lot of cases but um but basically as their attention turns to communities that have been created outside of their site it's going to be a question of understanding who's connecting properly with their audience and understanding that hey 300,000 you know twitter followers here and 600,000 instagram followers there might not mean as much or it might mean more than a following five six seven times as high
2: absolutely i think sometimes it also comes down to uh quality of people that certain athletes or fans are able to attract, uh, and that may just end up making them more valuable than the others. I know for the longest time, I think Roger Federer made uh, made more than the other uh, three in the Big Four combined. It came down to a whole host of factors of, um, I think, how um, fans around the world viewed him uh, with respect to how he played the sport and um, how he was... uh, being the ambassador for the sport in some senses
0: Okay, Um, that's a nice note to to end part one on Uh, Join us in just a second Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital and events Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news and interviews from the business of sport Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else Get inside the industry with SportsPro. Welcome back to the SportsPro podcast. Now, we spent a bit of time there in part one talking about the uh, effect of technological progress and the expansion of of the digital realm on on consumption and on people's interactions with athletes and so on. Um, We're going to spend a bit more time talking about that now because here in the UK on Monday, um, Sky Sports, which is still comfortably the leading uh, sports broadcaster in the country, um, confirmed its plans to completely shake up how it packages and prices its output. Um, a new set of single-sport channels priced not that dissimilarly to, um, to its current offering, but critically with fans able to take out the things that they don't want uh, and factor in the things that they do want um, much more explicitly than they have been before. Um, the obvious conclusion to jump to, I guess, is that this is a response to how other services in other sectors are, are priced, things like Netflix and Amazon that are kind of a little bit more um, pay-as-you-go.
1: Yeah, I guess so. They're in a, you know, Sky are in, like everybody else, are in a, a battle for people's time and money. Um, people are as we know and as we are constantly told at every conference and as the data bears out, consuming content in all sorts of different um, and interesting ways and people want to watch what they want to watch whenever they want to watch it and, uh, you know, on whatever device they want to... or they happen to be carrying carrying at the time. You know, we know live sport is, is holding up in terms of um, a linear... Uh, TV and you know it still is the thing that draws an audience and draws advertisers, but I think um, it's a, it's a completely natural natural reaction from Sky to, to changing marketplace, changing consumer habits, but also because uh, they are in a, a very fierce battle themselves, the likes of which they haven't been a direct battle with with. BT, Mm -hmm. um, which you know we've talked about endlessly on these sort of uh, podcasts for the last few years, and uh, I think given the investment Sky made in the last round of in the last Premier League deal to retain the thing that has historically driven um, a lot of their subscriptions and moved the needle for them, they have they've realised that they need to uh, take a very close look and examine their pricing and. evolve it to meet those those changing habits so a combination of those things um have have, have sort of come together at the the same time and and this is the result i think it's uh i think it looks like an interesting package be fascinating to see how it uh, uh turns out um and i wonder whether given that they have branded channels um uh with with Specific sports, uh, whether they just sort of sort of given themselves away in, in future rights plays in terms mm. of the, the the type of rights they'll be going after and the type of rights that they they might not be prioritising, and that and that will be interesting. And I'm sure BT have people uh, working on that as well as uh, all the other broadcasters and and maybe even maybe even the odd social media platform.
0: Mm. Well, I mean the the two that are the two that are interesting is Sky Sports Premier League. Um, the Premier League are probably the sports property in this country that's best placed to kind of take all of its stuff in house and, and distribute it itself. It does obviously a lot of work with IMG on its own production that it can then sell around the world. Um, it's a an extremely popular league and, and you know, the the prospect for a lot of fans of paying whatever amount of money a year to watch all of their teams' games is, is a very obvious one. Um, and the other one that they've that they've packaged up is sky sports cricket which they've done around about the same time as they've signed the ecb up to another uh while the the combined deal with with sky and bbc is is 1.1 billion pounds but you'd imagine that sky have paid the the lion's share of that
1: and it's it's a very attractive thing for sky to go into those major rights holders and and say yeah we, we are so committed to your sport and remember the cricket deal, like the, the, the Premier League deal, filters down and involves uh, all sorts of grassroots programmes to really build the, the profile and build the participation base of the sport. So you can imagine the conversation that Sky will have had with the ECB as they've, they've shared these plans. I'm sure, similarly, the Premier League are not displeased at all to see a, an entire channel named after them. Um, and they'll have been right in the loop on that. And the same a, a few years ago, actually, the forerunner to this was the, the Sky Sports F1 channel, which mm-hmm. launched in uh, uh, 2012. And um, you can see why a, an organisation like F1 would have would have sort of almost bitten Sky's arm off uh, mm-hmm. uh, because of the, the the breadth of coverage and the depth of coverage that they can uh, they can give these things. Live content, of course. Multiple repeats, but also I think there's a commitment to um, create some more original programming, uh, whether that's documentaries or discussion programming, which again is is so useful for these these major uh, rights holders to have a broadcast partner that's that's committed in a in genuinely a sort of twenty four seven way.
0: Mm. And Anish, I mean, particularly that original programming, the, the the live rights discussion is a is a different question. I know Twitter has been involved as a, a live platform, but typically is a, a partner of a free-to-air um, broadcaster in, in various markets. Um, but the, that original programming piece, I suppose, also gives you more that you can engage people with on your platform, whether it's as teasers, whether it's as uh, as whole programs or, or whatever it might be. I mean, w- what kind of heed do you pay to these these kind of conversations?
2: I think what's really interesting about this is you know how they say that uh, the most precious resource on the planet now is human attention. And uh, this move helps clarify a lot of things for fans. Uh, as a fan, I might struggle to keep up with what channel is the sport and league that I want to watch on. And now it's clear that I need to go to Sky Sports Premier League or Sky Sports Cricket in this case. So it's uh, it definitely helps in... Uh, In putting that together, I think from my understanding of what I saw, uh, the overall package of all sports together uh, still seemed uh, um, reasonably valuable compared to if you split Mm. the packages up and bought them separately. So it's giving uh, the flexibility that fans desire to. Uh, I think there have been multiple experiments, uh, even in Asia, where uh, I think this is 11 sports in Singapore, which offers fans uh, the ability to buy single games of the Premier League right, and experience that for themselves, So pay a dollar or 99 cents and experience a game. And so uh, the direction in which this uh, this is moving is really interesting. I think uh, what uh, Twitter traditionally has had uh, a really robust relationship with broadcasters around the world, where uh, were the natural complement to sort of live sports broadcasting in the lead up to events, in the conversations, that sometimes even get people back into the events that they may be wanting to watch, or or they may have missed out and come in. So um, lots of conversations to talk about. I know we have a really good relationship with Sky Sports in the UK as well, and we're involved in multiple partnerships with them here. So lots to talk about.
1: Mm-hmm. And just as the broadcasters are engaged in, in a, a huge battle for people's time and their, their money, so the rights holders are in an almighty scrap with each other. You know, It is such a competitive landscape out there. And the prospect of a, uh, a fully branded cricket channel, for example, gives an organisation like the ECB, I would imagine, the opportunity, especially with a, a commercially-minded... A broadcaster like sky a real opportunity to um weave uh their commercial partners in you know in, in subtle ways uh branded content and and that then sort of moves through onto a platform like twitter potentially and we're seeing a lot more sort of brand integration uh, whether it's through broadcast sponsorship or sponsorship of uh clips that are that are broadcast of, of, of key moments uh, that are um, bro- um, posted by broadcasters or by rights holders via a, a platform like Twitter. So for, for these sports, it's uh, it's uh, definitely a win-win. I think, on the other hand, it's going to be interesting to see what Sky do in terms of what you might call uh, second-tier rights, mm-hmm. rights that maybe don't um, move the needle in terms of subscriptions, but have previously been... Uh, very important, um, uh, and I say this in a respectful way, as as channel fill- fillers, no. essentially. And I know they're going to have a, a, a Sky Sports Mix uh, channel showing off the best of, of other sports. So they're not out of the game in terms of acquiring rights to, to other sports. But I think there's a lot of sports that can't hope to get um, broadcast coverage on a free-to-air platform, for example, in the UK, and... Um, and they have traditionally looked to Sky to give them the kind of breadth and depth of coverage that the the hardcore fans of that sport want. So it'd be interesting to see whether we see a move from that sort of second tier of sports um, away from a platform like Sky, if they're not maybe getting the the attention that they, or the, the the hours that they once did, and for any rights holder as you said earlier there is an opportunity now to go their own way and and carve out their own broadcast strategy that involves maybe um, a a social platform or streaming via their own website so there's all sorts of opportunities there i think that will be interesting to
0: watch Mm. and i mean of course another direction that that could go in is that sky could look away from their own linear tv platform that they've had for so many years and, and become a kind of producer of these kind of uh, products for for these second tier rights holders, they could create a Sky Sports Netball that is an entirely digital product, and they now would have the expertise from having developed, first of all, Sky Sports F1, as you said, and and now these these other channels. And, and of course, you know, in in the on the the bigger battlefields for premium rights around the world, so many rights holders have already started to do those things for themselves that maybe some of the big media companies would start looking at at Being able to to do that product as a, as a white label or as a um, you know something of that nature.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, I think we should almost expect that. Um, Sky are renowned over many decades now for top quality production, and and as a as a second tier rights holder or as a or as a rights holder in a, in an emerging sport, who wouldn't want that sort of expertise. Um, thinking about how best to, to broadcast, you know, your key events. Mm.
0: Uh, where do you think uh, in this picture? Where does something like a, a DAZN or, you know, Eurosport, who, who've been pushing their Eurosport player quite um, significantly across across the continent, where do those kind of multi-sport, multi-strand but standalone OTT products sit? And Eleven Sports as well, which you, you talked about, is in Asia.
1: Mm-hmm. Clearly, I think what we're what we're seeing, you know, there's new options emerging all the time, and but there's there's clearly several business models at play, um, depending on you know whether you are coming at it from the point of view of a, a broadcaster in a single market, a pan-European or a pan-regional broadcaster, um, whether you're a, a social platform thinking about rights, there are there are different ways to to reach the the same. Uh, the same endgame and frankly there's enough sports and enough events to go round um, and that are worth paying rights fees for and that will command an audience that I think I don't think there's any reason to worry about any one particular business model I think everybody's going at it and I think you know the other thing is we don't know what the right answer is yet you know this is Sky's very public, uh, you know, publicizing their their strategy for the future. Others have different um, uh, thoughts, I'm sure. And, you know, we'll have to see which ones or whether one business model proves to be the most successful, and then we'll see everybody following it. But I don't think we're at that stage yet.
2: What's also interesting about this is is that this model is one where, because fans are paying subscription, and as a result of which... um, want to choose what they want to watch. I wonder what it would be like if it was an advertiser-led model or if advertising was uh, the larger share of revenue for, for a broadcaster. It may not be true out here, but it is in some parts uh, of Asia where um, where you may then want to have a mix of sports mm. because uh, when you're going and pitching to advertisers, you're able to offer them audiences that cut across other interests Uh, and also to keep in mind that sometimes the seasonality of certain sports may mean that you have a dedicated channel that doesn't have anything valuable happening for many
1: months on end Uh, and how do you deal with that and maybe as a last point on this i would say the two most interesting sports broadcast deals that i've seen so far this year one was a german bank which acquired the rights at the last minute to broadcast via its streaming on its own website, uh, the uh, World Handball Championships in Germany, which was a a sponsor of the German Domestic League, stepping in when no broadcaster picked up the rights. And the other was uh, Tom Daly, the uh, British Olympic diver, um, essentially acquiring the UK rights on an exclusive basis as well to the FINA World Diving Championships in which he was competing... For his own YouTube channel, um, so everything's on the table here. There's, you know, broadcasters are not just fighting broadcasters and, and social media platforms for for rights here, or the, or the big technology players. In, in a world where everybody can be a broadcaster, um, nothing is nothing is off the table.
0: Mm. And another um, another very interesting development again in the last week or so was um, Copper ninety, which is this this quite well backed. Um, fan culture channel on YouTube have talked about now taking on live rights, but not on a kind of sweeping basis, perhaps more, you know, they're they're a very programming-led channel. It might be that they do a documentary somewhere, they show the documentary, then they show the game. So there's a a whole host of things that can happen.
2: Yeah, and and to David's point, uh, the democratization of broadcasting now means that any individual or institution that is shaping culture or society or has an interest in that sport, can be a rights holder
0: all right thanks very much guys for that and um we'll be with you for the final part just after this welcome to the final part of today's sports Pro podcast now um in lausanne Earlier this week, we heard confirmation of something that we've known for a very, very long time, which is that the 2024 and 2028 Olympic Games should be going to some combination of Paris and Los Angeles, the IOC membership, effectively rubber stamping a decision that the executive body had already made uh, to seek a tripartite deal between the two bid teams um, and the IOC to find an order, basically, in which they'll all be happy to proceed um, and to secure the future of the Summer Olympics all the way through the next decade. Um, David, first of all, any, any particular reactions to that?
1: No. Um, no. I think um, it's been inevitable for some time, hasn't it? it it's, it's interesting that in at a time when organisations like the IOC are under... A lot of uh, scrutiny and are talking a good game in terms of things like transparency, that the biggest decision that they will make and the biggest decision they ever make will essentially happen behind closed doors now. But given the circumstances, I think this is a, an excellent outcome for Thomas Back. I think he's proved himself not for the first time to be the shrewdest of sports administrators. He's got exactly what he wanted. He's, he's secured his legacy in terms of putting these events in um, cities where, and let's not make too many assumptions, where you can be as, as confident as you probably can be that they are going to deliver and do a good job and not um, uh, not struggle under the, the weight, really, of um, having to build an Olympic Games. So... I can completely see why they've done it. I think the way he has he has won round uh, some previously quite sceptical members of the IOC is, is uh, fabulous, and and hearty congratulations to him for a yet another unanimous vote.
0: Um, but it, it is an interesting one because you know the the danger for the Olympics was that it would be taken out of um, of cities where let's put it let's put it bluntly, it would be taken out of democracies for the next kind of. 10-12 years and it would be in places that perhaps did as much damage to the Olympic brand as, as you know, something like Rio where you have a, a city that's um, struggled under the weight of, of, of the complexity and the expense of hosting Olympic Games. But,
1: but do you think it damaged the Olympic brand Rio?
0: Don't know. Don't know. I mean what is the Olympic brand now? I mean this is basically the question that we're trying to get onto you know it has now a fascinating run of summer games in uh, in Tokyo and then in Paris and then Los Angeles three of the world's best run cities um that are also three very different cities and promise three very different olympic experiences that are all kind of at the the premium end but there are still these kind of identity crises running through uh the olympic movement and it's not just a question of Of bidding and hosting, although I know the Winter Olympics is, they're they're trying to reform the kind of uh, hosting package for that to try and make that a little bit more appealing but there's something about the nature of the sports involved, there's something about the nature of um, the very concept of having a kind of two week sporting event all in the one place and whether that fits with with modern behaviours and modern models Is it a question of the Olympics having to move on or is it a question of the Olympics having to kind of have a little bit more faith in the strength of its own ideas
1: it is incredibly difficult i think to argue that the olympics has lost relevance that is you know all sorts of records were were broken in terms of the number of people that watched in rio the 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 most digital games ever the most talked about games ever It, it created you know as we talked about earlier national moments in so many nations and you know there is a it's a cliche but it is one of the very very few events that can genuinely bring a nation together or at least get you know a good portion of the nation watching the same thing at the same time and we talked about the 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 rarity of that earlier i just wonder whether the average person on the street frankly cares about the build-up or what happens afterwards? What they're seeing is a TV event, which is spectacular. And Rio was spectacular for all the issues. And, and you know, as as people who work in and around the sports industry, you know, we, we know about all the the very very legitimate issues around the games in Rio, and frankly, any Olympic games. You know, there are there are issues of security and pollution and the finances and the uh, the impact on people who are maybe. Um, have to be moved or whose lives are affected mm. by, by the building. New venues, white elephants. We know what all the issues are.
0: They're, they're local issues, really, aren't they? If you're a karaoke or if you're a Londoner, then you've been more affected by these I, issues than, than a TV viewer somewhere else in the world.
1: Yeah, I think they're local issues and they're sports industry issues and, and infrastructure issues that are completely legitimate to discuss. I just wonder whether the average sports fan who tunes in because... The Olympics are on in Rio and they're on a great time in the UK and, you know, they're watching every night and it's a festival of sport and they love sport. I wonder whether they really care before or afterwards.
2: And the interesting thing is also the, the question about the, the sustainability of both the fan interest in Olympic sports, uh, not necessarily the Olympics themselves. Um, and for and for the athletes in in, in many many countries where uh, the you know the funding for the Olympics may not be uh, as mature as it is in um, is in is in a few countries, and I wonder if there is a way to to keep that going through those four years, mm. uh, because what we have now is an opportunity with three games that are likely to be um, incredibly well done, hopefully. Um, well-watched in spectacles of their own. But uh, the move to have uh, certain sports that are unique to to those Olympics themselves is an interesting one. I think there is an element of history with Paris getting its games back after 100 years. Uh, So there is a lot to be able to play on to actually invest back and say, how do we then, and maybe the Olympic channel itself and the Olympics themselves act as, uh, as ways for fans to stay connected and say, the Olympics may last for two weeks, but the stories around the Olympics and the athletes who specifically prepare for the Olympics in some of those sports uh, live through those four years; otherwise, it becomes really hard with professionals and amateurs in the mm. mix. Uh, and you have tennis stars who are playing forty or fifty years, uh, weeks forty weeks a year on TV, uh, making really good money, and then coming in and playing the Olympics
1: versus someone who may be uh, in another sport that isn't broadcast at all. And and it's hard, you know. The Olympic Channel is a is an effort towards that to try and bring these stories to uh, to life and and try and make sure that. That sports on the Olympic program that maybe don't get the the, the media coverage of, of other sports get their moments and and there's a there's a place for that and there's an audience for for every one of those sports, large or small, um, but it's very very tricky. I think the onus is on um, all the international sports federations to really think about how they are. Um, presenting their sports and, and packaging their sports and, and running their sports in between the um, Olympic periods. Um, and that is not easy either because there are all sorts of pressures and all sorts of um, issues that they face in, in doing that, in, in being in part of this cluttered world. And, you know, like we were talking about earlier, you know, everybody is competing for people's time and attention. Um, but... and and the other thing is we know the international olympic committee and the olympic movement is cautious it's cautious by you know it's been cautious for for many many years so it is shifting it is evolving there's new sports coming in for uh tokyo now you can argue that something like skateboarding which is being sort of positioned as evidence that the ioc is moving with the times well if you know, you could argue that if the IOC was really moving with the times, skateboarding would have been in the Olympics 30 years ago. But I find it very difficult to see how you're going to be able to change the the fabric and the culture based on all the history of the Olympic movement to get them to make these kind of decisions. They're not going to rush into anything. They're not going to make knee-jerk reactions depending on, on what might be fashionable at, at, at any given moment. Um, so... It is, it is what it is, And um, but the one thing they can rely on is that through everything they do with the way they broadcast it, through the, the, the stories that emerge, through the fact that it is still the aspirational moment for so many athletes, which then generates all those stories that you were talking about, each they can rely on that every four years, and, and actually every two years, uh, if they can get their, their act together with the Winter Olympics as well.
0: Um, just to just to wrap up really I suppose now it 's um an event going on in London for the last couple of weeks and, and we talked about it a bit earlier um, Wimbledon, which perhaps faced similar challenges of relevance and uh, and identity in maybe fifteen years or so ago and has now kind of embraced the things that make it unique and that have made it uh, a mainstay um, and allied that to a strategy that really works for it in, in the digital era? I mean, what, what lessons are there, not just for the Olympics, but for any any established sports property from, from the success that Wimbledon's had in recent years?
2: What I've learned over the last couple of weeks uh, out here has been that uh, this is maybe something for uh, events to think of. As much as they're global, they're also local. And uh, I think what Wimbledon does a really good job of is... Uh, uh, is making sure that everyone has the opportunity to have an experience, whether it is being you know uh, being able to get into the queue uh, and get into the event or or being able to watch it on free to air television, uh, therefore having a large audience growing up with that event uh, and then staying true to that. But uh, as with any sport, I think the fans come for the players and the stars, and genuinely tennis has been blessed with an era unlike any other. Uh, And so the last decade or so has only raised the profile of uh, the sport,
1: but also the event which is the most coveted in that sport. And I think, you know, some people watch Wimbledon because they want to watch... Every single, or as ma- as, mu- as many matches as they uh, they can, because they're hardcore tennis fans, and Wimbledon is the the pinnacle of the sport. Some people want to watch because it's Wimbledon, and they like watching Roger Federer, or in previous years Serena Williams or Venus Williams. This year, um, some people watch Wimbledon or or, or like Wimbledon because it's uh, it's a social thing. It's it's part of the sort of. High social season in the in the UK, and it and it has all these great qualities, and it's the strawberries and, and cream, and it's the it's the manicure, it's the perfectly manicured grounds, and what Wimbledon, to their great credit, have been smart enough to realise is that is that people want to watch the tennis, the history, the social stuff, and they might want to watch it on a, a mobile phone or, or via an app as well as on free to air TV, and you know you, you can't fault. Uh, what they do, and again, it's it's going to be another case study, I think, of how you marry tradition and, and history and top quality sport with technology, without the technology being intrusive or seeming like it's it's forced. And you know, they do a great job.
0: Okay, and we're uh, gonna try and head off now and catch the end of Roger Federer's semi final. But um, thank you very much for a fascinating discussion, uh, and Nish Madani.
2: Thank you. And here's to Roger Federer wearing his 8th Wimbledon on Sunday.
0: Thanks, Anish. And uh, thank you again to David Kushner. Thank you, Avin. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.